Like I knew that if we did an in-person event, obviously only a fraction you'd be able to get there. And I feel like it's part of like the wonderful, but also terrible aspects of academia that like, how I did, how did I end up where I did my PhD or postdoc or my job? The answer is those are the only jobs that I got or the only places I was accepted to at every road. So when people are like, oh, wow, it's just so many, you need to figure out to go here to here to here. I was like, no, literally I had no other options. Um, and so that's how I ended up traveling a lot, which to be brutally honest about um, stuff. This is the only job I got. Um, uh, Cornell was the only place I got into. Uh, the, the short post-doc at UBC was the only, um, yeah, place that, that I that accepted me when I was applying for both jobs and postdocs at the end of my PhD. Um, and also, if it's helpful to hear pe people here, I was actually waitlisted at Cornell initially, so I wasn't even sure if I'd be able to get in there. And then look at me now. Um, yeah. And I guess like to also put it to perspective, um, because I think some people from the our MA program are here, and some I know some people are feeling extremely alienated about the experience of going further into academia and literary studies and feeling like the alienation is somehow their fault or some sort of failure with them. And I can reassure you, it it is not. I've been there during my master's and wondering if like it wasn't like there's something wrong with me because I wasn't interested in the same things that other people were interested in. And I realized it didn't matter if I gave a fuck about them. Like that's that's the sort of beauty of it. And likewise, even during my PhD at, at Cornell, uh, when I was finally made it in, I think our cohort was like 11 or 12 people. I don't, I don't know if other Cornellians want to correct me. And I think eight or eight of them, maybe at least, all were into high modernist poetry. Yeah. And I like some of the really beloved friends. I think Liz is here. She does amazing stuff and like high modernist queer stuff, and like, but, but also like from a food, critical food studies um, perspective. So, they're all, they're all cool stuff, but initially that personally for me, it was just like suddenly hearing every going around the room in every seminar and hearing what other people were into just made me feel like there was something deeply wrong with me and that I wasn't interested in taking the same seminars. I wasn't interested in uh, performing in the same ways or being interested in the same ways. Um, but then eventually I found myself in it as a 19th century Americanist, oddly enough in part because, um, and I hope Shirley is here to hear this, because I just realized which graduate student, PhD students seem to be the happiest and most well-adjusted. And I noticed that Shirley's students were that because she really put a lot of effort into making community uh, amongst her students. It wasn't just that she was like this major figurehead, like she encouraged us to support each other and to build community. Um, and, and then also just seeing the work of people like uh, John Sinchin and Bridget Fielder and the sort of work that they're doing in terms of like um, supporting and creating this community um, as opposed to the sort of ego-driven theory bro parts of the PhD experience was I think really important for illustrating what type of academic community I want to be a part of. And thank you to those of you here today to be a part of it. Uh, I guess my, my final cheesy stuff uh, rambling as things uh, roll in. Um, I also just wanted to give an acknowledgement today that the, the courage to do this makeup is thanks to um, Rihanna Davis, Rianne, shout out in Cambridge. Uh, they actually designed me um, a much more fabulous look, but then I realized I had to go out for dinner afterwards. But um, so I modified it and I like to describe it as my look generally as this high femme look, which is like me ready to shank Natalie Portman. So, which seems only appropriate also for like the themes of the book. Um, and so I see we have um, over like about half, over half the attendees. So hopefully it is 
good to start. And, um, and that way, I'll maybe I'll shut down the window and let Christine speak. And that means I can actually see things better. Uh, welcome all to the book launch for this wonderful book, Disaffected, um, by Zain Yao, who has just given a way better introduction than the introduction that I will give. Um, I'm Christine. I'll be chairing the discussion today. Um, just some normal etiquette stuff. Um, I'm sure you're all familiar. Um, keep your uh, mics muted whilst people are speaking. And then at the end, if you can raise your hand um, through the raise hand function or use the chat, we would also love for people to switch on their cameras when they ask a question that you don't have to. Um, it's just kind of nice to see all these faces. Like it's amazing, really. Um, and a testament to um, just how wonderful mine is and how wonderful um, the work is. So um, I'll be chairing later on, but first it is my honor to introduce Zain Yao, um, who is a lecturer in American literature. Yes, I can see you from clapping. <laughs> uh, who is a lecturer in American literature in 1900 at University College London. Um, their first book is Disaffected, you're at its launch today, The Cultural Politics of Unfeeling in 19th Century America which has won Duke University Press's Scholars of Color First Book Award in November, 2021. Her honors include the American Studies Association's Yasuo Sakakibara Essay Prize, and their research has been supported by grants from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. She's also BBC Radio 3 and HRC New Generation Thinker, and the co-host of PhDVas podcast. I'm sure there's lots of fans of the podcast here. Um, and can I also add, it's just generally a wonderful person um, and such a gift to have in UK academia. I personally don't know how we would survive without sign. So um, this is, yeah, this is just such a special moment. Um, and I think this leaves me with the wonderful task of handing over to Zine. Thank you. Um, I, it's just such an honor to be able to have my friends here today, audience, respondents. Um, also, like I just wanted to highlight that uh, Christine was one of the one of the first friends I made out of the blue because I just I literally in the first couple of weeks of moving to the UK, um, I asked uh, the couple of friends that I did have that I knew um, through professional circles before moving here, um, Hannah Murray um, uh, and uh, Kate McGettigan. Are there any scholars of color in American studies in the in the UK? And literally, everyone started pointing me to Christine, and so I think I literally sent Christine an email being like, "Hi, we're both not white. Can we hang out?" <laughs> and then we ended up becoming friends. Um, and I just am so grateful for. I feel like the, what I like saying is that, like, when I came to the UK, I think I had like um, five friends, and those friends were really important for setting me up, but that the friends that I've made while I've been here, um, pretty much everyone has either been um, a person of people of color or queer or both. Um, uh, so yeah, I feel like that, that covers most people. In fact, the only person who isn't, doesn't fall into those categories who is not from my work is my partner. But hey, Steve, <laughs> the silver fox. Very anomalous, I know. Okay, anyways, the way I was planning to do this um, is to give um, but like a 15 minute talk from the book, just so people know what, what it is for those of you who don't know. Um, and then we'll, we'll go into each of the respondents where I'll, I will introduce my, my fabulous, um, my fabulous friends. 
and I don't know if the silver fox wants to be introduced. He is just in the other room. <laughs> uh, okay, so I'm going to share my screen again. Uh, with a couple of the epigraphs that, that I open with. Um, and I think it's the way that the uh, epigraphs operate as a type of politics of citation and these alternate intellectual genealogies that I really came across only after doing my PhD, um, which are so important to me. Um, so the first one from Denise Ferrer da Silva's uh, Toward a Global Idea of Race, which I first read while being at UBC where da Silva is based. Um, affectability. The condition of being both subjected to both natural and the scientific and lay sense conditions into others' power. And then second, affectable eye, the scientific construction of non-European minds. The next quotation is from Martin F. Manelanson in his essay about um, Philippinex workers in the global care economy. He says, by disaffection, I emphasize not only emotional distance, alienation, antipathy, and isolation, but also to center this word's other connotation of disloyalty to regimes of power. Then finally, from Edward Glisson, translated from the French, I thus am able to conceive of the opacity of the other for me without reproach for my opacity to him. To feel in solidarity with him or to build with him or to like what he does, it is not necessary for me to grasp him. Okay, and now reading. White feelings, white tears, white fragility, white women's tears, white men's tears, these phrases circulate within popular anti-racist social justice discourse galvanized by Black Lives Matter. These phrases articulate frustration with the ongoing manifestations of what scholars have variously called the unfinished business of sentimentality, the legacies of the intimacies of four continents, and the biopolitics of feeling. They name the weaponization of white feelings in everyday life. Behind these uses is the implicit statement we know, have always known, that white feelings produce and maintain structures of domination. To depend upon white feelings as the catalyst for social change reinscribes the very world that enables their power. So, no more business with white sentimentality. Withhold from those colonial intimacies. Refuse to feel according to the hierarchies of the biopolitics of feeling. Be disaffected. There is ambivalence, there is discontent. Philosophers Sylvia Winter and Denise Ferrer de Silva have argued the way the category of man, bourgeois Western whiteness, overrepresents itself as universal humanity structured upon the suppression of racialized modalities of the human as mere derivations. Following lines of inquiry opened up for us by their insights, what operations are concealed and enabled by the construct of universal feeling as a symptom and signifier of that coloniality? Affectability, looking at my epigraph, is that enlightenment universality transmuted into the biopolitical apparatuses of global modernity, that condition of being both um, subjected to natural and scientific lay sense conditions into other powers. Affectability is what is, defines raciality. She says the transparent eye has the agency to know and affect, while the affectable eye is that which is susceptible. And this way, De Silva recalls for us Spinoza's foundational proposition about the nature of emotions in relation to the world. Spinoza states, by emotion, I understand the modifications of the body by which the power of the acting of the body itself is increased, diminished, helped, or hindered together with the idea of these modifications. Although not written with affect studies in mind, De Silva's definition of affectability, as Tyrannus Palmer observes, points to, quote, the inextricability of affect from power. So then I say, disaffection threatens a break from affectability. I ask then, how does unfeeling operate as the constitutive outside to that totalizing system and what challenge can disaffection pose? 
In this regard, I take unfeeling not simply as negative feelings or the absence of feeling, but as that which cannot be recognized as feeling, the negation of feeling itself. By foregrounding the heuristic of unfeeling as disaffection and its effective calls on political meanings, this project makes key interventions into our understanding of affect and politics in American literature and culture, a paradigm which has disproportionately affected the world. First, I reconsider unfeeling as index of the under-acknowledged spectrum of dissonance and dissent that critiques the demands of sympathetic recognition shaped by sentimentalism, questioning the liberal project of inclusion. Second, I explore unfeeling in both the responsive and demonstrative senses as a quotidian tactic of survival and a counterintuitive, sometimes counteractive mode of care. Finally, I propose that these antisocial affects are vilified as unfeeling because they have insurgent potential that may not be legible or instrumentalized towards resistance. Following Raymond Williams' definition of structures of feeling as the effective workings of ideology and lived experience, disaffection may be the unfeeling rupture that enables new structures of feeling to arise. In other words, the reading of unfeeling as oppositional negation functions as a defensive denial of the quickening, flourishing, and renewal of alternative forms of sociality made possible by feeling otherwise. I am not so much interested in fine-tuning the distinctions between agentic volition and instinctual physiology that attend the generally held taxonomization of the strata of affect, feeling, and emotional expression, or along the polarization of the axes of interiority to externalization, unconscious to conscious, as in stressing the flexible operations of how these differentiations naturalize scales of the human, non-human, living, and non-living, which Mel Chen groups under the rubric of the animist hierarchy. Of greater concern to me are the operations of unfeeling as a form of antisocial discontent, if not defiance, against the compulsory norms for expressing feeling, along with susceptibility to the feelings of others. It can signal skepticism and reluctance to signify the appropriate expressions of affect. They're socially legible as human, or the refusal to care and sympathize as part of the expected cues of deference that maintain a structure of biopolitical hierarchies of oppression. Insofar as, sadly, the recently late Lauren Berlant points out, withholding can operate as a sign of civility for the privileged, and as she says, is often deemed good manners for the servant classes, for those so-called problem populations, and that disaffection signals the threat of the ungovernable. The popular understanding of emotional labor, originally coined by sociologist Arlie Hochschild, is a useful means to address the uneven expectation about who does this labor and for whom, according to the overlapping but irreducible processes of racialization, class differentiation, and their modulations of sexual difference that adhere despite the possibility promise of the socioeconomic mobility. We can recall that W.E. Du Bois begins the souls of black folk with the question, how does it feel to be a problem? Affects deracinated universality as part of its appeal as a critical turn, surmises Claire Hemmings, a productive way out of the impasse of deconstruction and hegemony by tending to embodied experience, aleatory attachments, and quirky textures of everyday life as potentially transformative. Despite Sarah Ahmed's oeuvre on how effective economies shape the signification and relations of individual and collective bodies, and CNI's work on racial animatedness and to some extent our discussion of irritation, they too often remain exceptions regardless of their influence. On the level of scholarship, then, we must confront the systemic refusal to take these conceptualizations of feeling as valid that mirrors the historical and cultural denials of the feelings of peoples of color and those other disaffected, marginalized populations. In this sense, they too are subordinated as unfeeling within the academic episteme. Demands for change in the academy have been issued, 
their calls for de decolonizing racially affect studies by recognizing how affect operates for peoples of color and adopting non-Western taxonomies and paradigms of affect. And indeed, even as I read this, like, so the number of people that I'm citing are in this space. And thank you so much for this work that has enabled me to think these things. Through what I view as an ongoing anti-social turn in affect theory, I suggest unfeeling constitutes a break from dominant structures of feeling. Affect aliens like the feminist killjoy and angry black women, according to Sarah Ahmed, disrupt normative conventions of happiness. Then what are the implications of alienation from affect itself? For critics like Berlant and Wendy Lee, the phenomenon of unfeeling entails both frustration and promise. And I turn again to the Martin F. Manelanson quote about disaffection, that is all these connotations of disloyalty to the regimes of power and authority. And so as a counterpart to demands for third world feelings and labor, this model of disaffection acts as a quotidian performance that enables the execution of labor, but also the potential for activism, the appearance of being unmoved, unaffected, concealing its potential for the choice to be moved and be moved in other ways. The matrix of power that overrepresents the universal human through the objection of those positioned as other is the condition that determines the intelligibility of feelings as signifiers of human interiority, producing the subjection of unfeeling, exiled beyond the horizon of the social. Put another way, marginalized unfeeling is under-recognized, underside to universalized feelings of the dominant. And I use unfeeling as a broad term for a range of effective modes, performances, moments, patterns of practices that fall out side or not legible to dominant regimes of expression and including but not limited to withholding, disregard, growing a thick skin, refusal to care, opacity, numbness, dissociation, inscrutability, frigidity, insensibility, obduracy, flatness, insensitivity, disinterest, coldness, heartlessness, fatigue, desensitization, emotional unavailability. And to this list, I would now add burnout, perhaps all too familiar to us. In short, those who are disaffected break from effectability, presenting as unaffected. Those inexpressive expressions stubbornly thwart the supposed universality of affects encompassing intensities, tracking the edges of their influences and suggesting a beyond to their limits. And so taking up the ethical charge to, to disrupt affect studies, I turn to queer and feminist color theorists whose underappreciated contributions to the intellectual histories of feeling paradoxically positions them as thinkers uniquely attentive to this disaffected sense I'm exploring. In this tradition, I suggest we can track unfeeling as a theory in the flesh, not necessarily as opposition to feeling, but actually as complement and lived experience within the effective hierarchies of biopolitics. In her original preface to this bridge called My Back, writings of radical woman of color, Sherry Moraga speaks to lived experience of the writers collected in the volume. Our strategy is how we cope, how we measure and weigh what is to be said and when, what is to be done and how, and to whom and to whom and to whom daily deciding, risking who it is we can call an ally, call a friend. There's a necessary calculus of refusals. The apparent dulling or lack of affect can be a defensive tactic of everyday psychic survival in a world predicated upon racial and sexual violences. As Ansel Dua says, to cope with hurt and control my fears, I grew a thick skin. Or in the words of Audre Lorde, in order to withstand the weather, we had to become stone. Their images of thick skin and stone indicate that the callousness of insensitivity may be the development of an effective callous, a protective hardening of a sensitive psyche against the wearing of everyday life, and the repetitive tasks of racialized, gendered, emotional labor. Uncritical valorization of unfeeling as triumphant resistance, however, runs the risk of being misread and vilified. As Lord says, I am not the frozen snow queen, but a flesh and blood woman with perhaps too loving a heart, one easily hurt. 
And as Audre Lorde notes, this antisocial armor can be turned against those it's meant to protect because she points out that the cultivation of a stony exterior can lead to black women hurting other black women, saying, we bruise ourselves on the other who is closest. Unfeeling then is a dangerous gambit, but the pathologization of its manifestations obscures how cultivating unresponsiveness and inexpressiveness are effects of the structural alienations in the cultural sentiment and symptoms of dissatisfaction. To choose not to care, not to be moved, pushes against the expectations of affectability. Nonetheless, these writings by queer women of color testify that these feelings can be recovered, even though they had to be suspended for the sake of survival. Rather than simply absence and negation, unfeeling may enable dormant, incipient, and insurgent affects, although I'd say at the same time it should not be obliged to. Unfeeling can be used strategically in the service of the eventual flourishing of feeling, as of the Anzal Duas figure of the India Mesteza, saying, she hid her feelings, she hid her truths, she concealed her fire, but she kept stoking the inner flame. These feelings do not require expression or recognition for legitimacy by the, by the dominant or otherwise. One feeling in another sense names the outsider frustration with the dissenting modes of emotional life that may seem inevitable to them. For her own creative growth, Anzal Dua works to consciously reshape her structure of feeling, what she calls her belief system, not through just affirmation, but also destruction. She says, those I don't want, I starve. I feed them, no words, no images, no feeling. I suspect there's a congruence then between these processes of disaffection and Jose Esteban Munoz's disidentifications. Suspension of relationality allows for creative remakings in the struggle toward the horizon of queerness with its potentialities and possibilities. Unfeeling is the detachment from attachments to hegemonic structures of feeling towards a potentially radical politics of liberation. So that's it for the just reading me part, but I just also wanted to shift to the closing uh, epigraph I have in my book. Sorry, I have to shuffling everything around as a way of introducing uh, the amazing lineup of respondents I have. So at the very end of my, my book, I end with this coda that originally um, was supposed to be responded to by Lucia Lorenzi, um, my dear friend who created the beautiful artwork for my book. Um, and actually, uh, she sent me the original here from Vancouver. Um, and I'm really sorry that she wasn't able to be here. Like, um, that I, th I know that Lucia has been going through a lot structurally and I think it just speaks to how alienating and particularly like ableist and anti-black academia and Canadian academia is. Um, but I wanted to like Lucia to know that everyone absolutely loves her work and she's both like a writer and an artist to thinker. Um, and how did I come across this art to begin with? During the very first lockdown, I was just feeling very alone, as many of us probably were, as um, living on my own as well, so that felt very alienating. And scrolling through Instagram, I saw that Lucia was painting a series inspired by the pandemic. And this particular one she painted, I think, was with the title Intimacy. And she's thinking about like reaching across differences. And as soon as I saw it, I just I knew that this somehow expressed something about um, the work that I was doing, and it, and generously she allowed me to use it, and generously Duke University Press let me use it as a cover, um, and it, Amy Harrison, who's a member of Duke University Press's union, um, helped to make that a reality, and had the suggestion of putting gold foil on the cover, which uh, really warms the cockles of my my femme heart. Um, but anyways, I thought it was important to give you this final epigraph from 
this essay that gets cited so much, um, Audre Lorde's The Master's Tools Will Never Dismantle the Master's House, which is too easily just reduced just to its title and people forget the context of, of the writing. And sometimes it could be even weaponized that the very first keynote I gave when I came to the UK um, was for a decolonizing STEM conference and it was run by students and they generously invited me to speak. Um, and then the very first question I had after, for, after my talk, which is about um, black reimaginings of, uh, of solidarity with indigenous and Asian peoples, a white guy put up his hand and said, so I'm a white man and I, use, I know that you're probably used to being attacked by white men, but as Audre Lorde says, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. So why are you giving a keynote? Um, yeah, yeah, yep, yep, yep. Um, but anyways, I wanted to highlight this particular passage in that essay um, because I think it speaks to the way I'm talking about unfeeling as a rupture towards alternative structures of feeling. She says, those of us who stand outside the circle of the society's definition of acceptable woman, those of us who have been forged in the crucibles of difference, those of us who are poor, who are lesbians, who are black, who are older, know that survival is not an academic skill. It is learning how to stand alone, unpopular and sometimes reviled, and have to make common cause with those others identified as outside the structures in order to define and to seek a world in which we can all flourish. And I feel like this is what part of the mission of the book, but also the mission of like the, the brilliant respondents that I've brought together and um, all you friends, colleagues who have joined today, that even though we're the majority in the space, we're used to not being the majority in any sort of way in the spaces that, that we work. Um, and yet we're able to create these forms of affiliation despite the sort of structures that want to divide and conquer us. Um, yeah, and I'm, I'm really grateful to be able to introduce my amazing friends to you. Um, uh, I also perhaps wanted to do a brief acknowledgement that that's, there's, um, there's no appropriate equivalent to a land acknowledgement in the UK because as one of my colleagues once said to, uh, said to me when I was talking about indigenous literature, here indigenous means racist white people who support Brexit. Um, but I have been thinking like, what is the equivalent of what I can do uh, in terms of a type of acknowledgements? And here I'm inspired by Gina Zorowski's brilliant exercise about getting students to think about where they're knowing from. And so I want to highlight that, you know, I'm here from the settler colony of Toronto, which is formerly like the uh, dispossessed territory in Anishinaabe. My family is from the abandoned colonial outpost of Hong Kong. And here I am in the former heart of empire, working at an institution which is responsible for the founding of eugenics. Um, and if, if you'd like to know more, um, Sarah Ahmed's Uses of Use has an entire chapter dedicated to UCL and how Benthium uh, utilitarianism played a role along with colonial education uh, in the dissemination of eugenics. And so this, these are the structures that we're working with against, sometimes complicit in, um, but it felt important to acknowledge. Anyways, okay, so how is the rest of this gonna be structured? So my idea was that uh, I was giving, gonna give each friend uh, a section of the book to respond to um, and like be a nice introduction to them. And they'll say a little bit about the chapter but then they'll talk about their own work. And um, a lot of them are, are working on their first book projects and our friends are finishing up their PhDs. And I hope you'll keep an eye out for all the work that they're doing. And so first up is Christine Okoff. Uh, to introduce Christine, um, 
Christine Okoth is a lecturer in Literatures and Cultures of the Black Atlantic at King's College London, and was previously a research fellow at the University of Warwick, where she worked on the project World Literature and Commodity Frontiers, run by Dr. Mike Niblett and Dr. Chris Campbell. She is currently writing a brilliant manuscript entitled Race and the Raw Material, Black Aesthetics as Extractive Form, which argues that contemporary Black writers and artists invoke raw materials as a means of advancing a global eco-materialist account of race and racial form. A part of this project has been published in Textual Practice and a special issue on writing extractivism. Christine's other work has appeared or is forthcoming in the Cambridge Quarterly, the White Review and Modern Fiction Studies. And she'll be responding to my first chapter, which is entitled The Babel Problem, White Sentimentalism and Unsympathetic Blackness in Herman Melville's Benito Serena. Um, thank you so much, Zine, for letting me be part of your celebration. Um, and I can I just say, yes, clapping for um, the beautiful introduction of your introduction. Um, you will not be hearing very much about my work because this is your moment, um, but maybe we can talk about some of the preoccupations we share um, in the discussion later. So I had the honor of introducing you. I have yet another honor of responding to a chapter that has already won an award in its guise as a conference paper for the annual ASA meeting. Um, and a chapter that opens a remarkable book, which reads unfeeling as a strategy of refusal, one that is often effective because it is so frequently misread as pathologized emotion against the backdrop of a racialized culture of sentiment. Like Du Bois's Who's What Does It Feel Like to Be a Problem um, opens the souls of black folk. This affected chapter, The Babel Problem, begins with a question or as Sine puts it, a proposal. Quote, what if we considered Barber instead of Bartleby in our discussion of Melville's exploration of refusal? Putting the enslaved and then temporarily self-liberated Senegalese man Barber at the center of your reading of politics of refusal does not just turn our attention from Scrivener to enslaved, but it also displaces the primacy of the vocally articulated rejection of work to those acts of quiet to invoke Kevin Crashy quiet recalcitrance and resentment, those bad affects that many of us nurture, um, especially for the academy, but they're here re read as the basis of a momentary political and epistemic upheaval. And where Bartleby's refusal is both confrontational and clear, so open in fact that I prefer not to, has morphed into a catchphrase of sorts, Babel's refusal is covert. As Sainzel elegantly delineates, this is a story in which the refusal to be known and to slot neatly into the particular biopolitical regime of feeling characteristic of 19th century America is the basis of black visions of freedom and revolt. We might then keep in mind another question to add to the other wonderful questions, which relates somewhat to the second chapter of the book too. Is unfeeling revolutionary feeling? In many ways, this chapter is about hierarchies of looking and being seen. Enslaved black people who don't, do not return a white gaze, severed heads that hark back to the race sciences of craniology and that suddenly look back, and a character who participates in an obfuscating ruse so effective that both reader and protagonist are caught off guard. These moments um, hark back to the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 and those regimes of vision and visualization that dictated the search for self-liberated Black people who had acted on their theorization of freedom. These advertisements, um, which alongside the still unfolding practice of race science, um, taught white Americans to engage in acts of visual abstraction when it came to describing both the appearance and character of black people. And here I want to um, take a moment briefly to acknowledge the idea that um, 
the idea of collection um, of skulls is both a scientific pursuit, but also collection as an aesthetic pursuit. And in our far, these kind of questions um, are already built into our idea of aesthetics and aesthetic experience and aesthetic education. On returning to Melville's story after an encounter with the remarkable reading in this book, one realizes just how much of Babel we as readers can never quite grasp or see ourselves. We too are caught in the web of a sentimentalism which, quote, suppresses and renders illegible the emergence of alternative structures of feeling that would threaten its posturing as universal. Through the third person narrator, we participate in the sentimental order that Melville has constructed for Delano and likely participate in that order in our everyday life. We too likely misread on feeling as something much more benign. Um, and I say this um, in the hopes that this is the case. Um, a sign reminds us in her meticulously reconstructed history of race, science, art, and sculpture, um, these other modes of representation are deeply enmeshed in the construction of racialized affect, reinforcing existing assumptions of both black affectability and illegibility. And so we could think here, for instance, this is from my own work, of the idea that black skin cannot show emotion in the same way, which reminds me of a portrait show of Torian Abudatola, um, who uses pens, viral uh, pens, um, to for her portraits of black people. These invocations of representation aren't just about the history of the sentimental novel, then, but also chime with the concerns of some of the theorists that are foundational to this book. Winter, for instance, notably uses the term genre to refer to those hierarchies of the human that are maintained by colonial and racial orders. And she engages in a complex dialectics between culture and politics in her early essays, Jonathan in Jamaica and novel of history, Plotted Plantation. Melville himself has done something somewhat dialectical with the form of the novella here through direct references to an actual historical event and the addition of the legal sphere after the conclusion of the third person narration. These generic conflations also function as a way of demonstrating how literary form stages the uncomfortable fiction of universal feeling against the strategy of unfeeling. Unlike the real Serena, who was in interested in recognizing the service of the American, Melville's novella ends up neatly aligning Serena and Delano's shared investment in maintaining the ship's racial order. As Sine puts it, like the order of the story, Delano's sense of order is also restored. It's one of my favorite lines. This outcome runs counter to those historical moments of misrecognition that serve as the backdrop of the novella. Um, and I've already spoken about the Fugitive Slave Act, in which sentimentality and the assumption of shared feeling, or in Adam Smith's terms, fellow feeling, renders white enslavers incapable of identifying threats to the existing racial order. To paraphrase Michelle Rodriguez's assessment that the Haitian Revolution came as a shock to the island's enslavers because they could not comprehend that the enslaved Black population could conceive of, let alone demand, freedom. We could likewise think here about the fact that Delano cannot see a rebellion because his constant acts of looking, meticulously documented in science readings, can only see a group of caring, unfree Black people rather than a group of political actors who have strategized and planned an insurrection. This is both an example of Neil Roberts' proposal that the enslaved populations of the Caribbean, Latin America, and the United States develop their own conceptions of freedom within the constraints of society structure around slavery. And it's also an extension of this argument, we think. Not only are these instances of differently theorized freedom, but it is not an escape in this case. The sphere of unfeeling becomes the dominant affective mode, even if only briefly. So it's a moment in which everybody has to subscribe to this. And this mode of unfeeling to invoke one of the central claims of affect studies is also a collective refusal. As much as Bartleby has been read as a general stand-in for what it means to not want to perform one's job, 
his rejection remains markedly individualized, especially when compared to the rock in the San Dominique, which sees an entire ship of enslaved Africans participate in a charade of civility in pursuit of freedom. Benita Sereno then stands as Melville's tale of collective refusal, um, one in which not just Baba, but a group of Black people leverage the racialized assumptions around Black feeling together as a shared affect of unfeeling. People like the Black woman and her child that Milano views as a, quote, pleasant sort of sunny side um, that sign points to, and then immediately renders them in terms of both idealized and distinctly non-human terms. And it's also this woman who in turn refuses to return Delano's gaze who is part of this rebellion and the sphere of unfeeling. I would be remiss to not note um, at the end your beautiful reading of Babel's final gaze from beyond death um, at the Afro-Peruvian settlements of Lima, which as your footnote states, was informed by conversations and discussions with Emily Floyd, also my guide to Peru. <laughs> the chapter already gestures towards a central aim articulated in the book's introduction. Through an account of the bad qualities of feeling, the United States is ultimately decentered and gives way to a global understanding of how race and race science shift as they traverse the globe alongside the fictional figures that form the center of the book's analysis. Though it is in your readings of Delaney's Blake and the short stories of Suicide Fire that the global scale of unfeeling becomes particularly global, I think that there are already so many ways of reading into this global critique of the centrality of the US in this chapter. But I also think, and this also tends to maybe a preoccupation we share, that there is a potential critique of some assumptions within contemporary Black studies in your last reading. Um, in the reading of Babu's final act of defiance, this look of a severed head um, that returns the gaze, the book positions this moment of looking back as an example of Fred Moten's assertion that quote, the history of Blackness is testament to the fact that objects can and do exist. But in your case, this is an actual object, a severed head. Um, which I think is a really correct reading of this. Um, and one can trace, and you, as you say, one can trace a shift from living face to mute head to eventual skull specimen, right? Whereas Moten uses this in his writing of, on the untested scream in Douglas's narrative. So at the end, I would just like to throw another question out there. What does it mean then that your geniality ends on an actual kind of object, a black person made object and recognizes that as a distinctive process um, it does not it does not objectify the unfeeling black character. Thank you so much for a wonderful book, and thank you so much for letting me um, think with it. Thank you, Christine. Um, sorry, I'll quickly share a screen so I could get to the second of my brilliant speakers um, for chapter two. So Rihanna Walcott is also at King's College London. Um, Rihanna is a LAP-funded PhD candidate. Um, in the digital humanities department, researching black women's identity formation in digital spaces and a graduate twice over from the University of Edinburgh. She co-founded Project Myopia, a website that promotes inclusivity in academia and a decolonized curriculum. She frequently writes about race, feminism, mental health, arts and culture for publications using, including The Welcome Collection, The Metro, The Guardian, The BBC, Vice and Dazed. Brianna is co-editor of an anthology about BAME and mental health, The Color of Madness. And in to the time left over, she moonlights the professional jazz singer. And of course, you could find her on all the socials because she's on digital humanities. And I had the pleasure of first meeting Rihanna in the airport of Hawaii in Honolulu. Thank you, Rihanna. Thank you so much for having me. Hello. Hi, everyone. Um, so I'm going to start this off by saying that um, as I was preparing for this, I'm 
I, I kind of, I deliver talks in a little bit of a different way sometimes. So where I don't usually prepare like something to read or anything. I just, I read it and I thought and I felt and I wrote lots of notes and, um, you know, particularly highlighted lots of the bits. I'm, yeah, I'm one of those people who's not a book purist. I'm sorry, there's highlighter on your book now. <laughs> and which was hard to do because it's so beautiful, obviously, but that means a book is well loved in my opinion. So um, I'm just going to walk you through some of those notes and some of those thoughts I had. Um, this is of course, a little bit of a, um, of a step for me now. I'm a digital humanist these days and no longer an, uh, an English lit student. So um, yeah, please bear with me and be very kind. So um, a lot of this was had me thinking about its relationships to my work and its relationships to, you know, some of the sort of decolonial practice that I do and particularly um, the relationship that I have um, to Zine in this room, to Jade and to Jess when we do get together and when we create these spaces where we can think about, um, you know, our relationship to the academy, our relationship to whiteness, and, um, you know, the way that we think and work. And, and I, you know, one of the things, so my chapter um, is about Delany's work. And it is about um, how it, it, it starts out thinking about this work as reactive to um, Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin, which um, he writes his wife read um, and he knew nothing about it, <laughs> which I thought was very funny. So, um, and you know, the, the key assertion from his reading of it was that no white person knows us and our, our elevation must come from ourselves. So setting aside this sort of white sentimentalism versus black self-determination. Um, but obviously we must look at his absolute lack of, um, of women in this novel as well. So I wanted to start out by read and also the um, affirmation of a coalition between um, black people and black elevation with um, indigenous um, settlers as well, um, the sort of, with indigenous American people as well. So he recounts this tale. Um, there is an old American story about an Indian and a white man hunting game together. When they shot wild turkeys and buzzards, agreeing to divide, taking bird about the white huntsman being the teller. In counting, the white man would say, alternately taking up either bird, turkey for me and buzzard for you, buzzard for you and turkey for me. He'd grown tired of that method of counting the game, soon accosted his friend. Uh, how's this? All buzzard for me, but you never say turkey for me once. I feel somewhat as this Indian did. I'm growing weary of receiving the buzzard as our share, while our tellers get all the turkeys. That is not the way to tell it to me. And then this, um, this novel then becomes uh, a reclamation of the telling, I think, of who gets to tell and what kind of story is told. And again, this whole, um, this whole chapter by Zion is undergirded with this idea that you, he feels somewhat as this Indian did, that there is not, um, that you can't draw direct parallels between those two experiences but rather that um, there are some, there is somewhat a connection in this feeling. So the re-theorization of fellow feeling and centering racial dynamics of feeling between um, disaffected black and indigenous peoples. 
So by drawing parallels without conflating black and indigenous histories in America, disrupts the what Zion calls the colonial dichotomization of blackness and indigeneity as antagonistic. Um, there is, you know, whilst also uh, bringing to attention to light those oft erased Afro natives and this uh, artificial con uh, contradiction between diasporic dispossession of black people versus an autochthonic rootedness of indigenous peoples. Um, it there was certainly like a what this drew parallels to me was also thinking about the intertwined pro projects of slavery and co colonialism in America as in Africa. Um, but one of the sort of the contradiction I felt from seeing the way that this was written about Delaney and about how he was thinking through these, um, you know, the in the way that black feeling, black affect is made invisible um, in the project of making us sympathetic and as in the telling by someone else rather than telling by us. He still draws this um, racial hierarchy. I wondered who, you know, for whose benefit are we using these same tools of oppression to repudiate uh, black inf inferiority by arguing a superiority at the expense of indigenous peoples? I still questioned like, well, who, who is that for? If we are having to use the same metrics um, as white people in order to design, you know, to talk about our positionality as, you know, to repudiate this inferiority that's assumed for us, then, you know, is that still a politics of refusal? Is that not in some way um, aligning yourself with those same metrics? Um. <laughs> so, I've also um, this idea about displaying white tears and feelings as ineffective. Um, there's a there's a section here on mark pages in both bits really, but there uh, here um, law is but a fable, its ministration a farce. This idea that there's no sense in appealing to white sentimental politics of recognition when those same politics produce the systemic oppressions. So the repudiation of white feelings and white tears as like ineffective, these white sympathies and revelations are framed as separate to and irrelevant to black revolutionary action. And this black unfeeling response, I particularly liked um, of Blake, where um, rather than angling for sympathy on the slave ship, Blake adopts the posture of unfeeling to focus on his mission. With lips pressed um, together, Blake looked on without an evidence of emotion. And again, you know, Zion then uses the idea that white feelings are not one of the master's tools that can dismantle the master's house. This in, um, you know, juxtaposed with the fact that there are the, the onboard Captain Paul and his midshipmen are having epiphanies about the error of transporting slaves. But these feelings of perhaps we're doing something wrong here actually do nothing to, to free the people who are involved. Um, you know, they continue, they, they do not change their plans to pick up enslaved Africans to sell in Cuba, nor do they stop their crew from throwing sick black men, women and children overboard in the echoes of the Zong massacre, and they play no role in the revolution of the extant text. So this, um, even though they are there, they are sympathetic, they are showing affect, they are um, feeling and learning purportedly, they still have nothing to do with our revolution. 
And that really, um, you know, thinking about those tensions between um, white feeling and its lack really has me thinking about some of the work that we do as scholars together, and particularly our work um, with you know, with Zion and Jade and Jess, when we do pull together these white writing retreats and when we're thinking about ways that we can extract from the institution and pour back into ourselves. And some of those tensions that I think we so regularly feel, um, myself working with a project on decolonization of the academy that is funded by the London Arts and Humanities Partnership, as am I, or as was I, so I don't know if I'm, you know, when can you start chatting rec when your funding's finished out? Like how long do you have to leave? <laughs> <laughs> between the end of the funding you started to chat shit about them but um you know the idea that this project that is about that um the whole the whole um underpinning of this project is the idea that there's something in fundamental about the academy that needs to change something fundamental that is going wrong that is leading to our um behaviors in the academy being as they are the fact that we have to um dissemble <laughs> and behave in a certain way ways that Zion and I you know we've spoken about in terms of the the mask wearing the mask and you know having this double consciousness about our performance within the academy and then also simultaneously um you know why did we seek out why am I getting a PhD if I have this heavy disdain <laughs> for the academy what kind of um like in the same way that I felt conflicted about Delany's movement towards um, using the same sorts of tools of talking about, uh, you know, uh, inferiority and, and not being inferior, using the same sorts of metrics that we use of thinking about feeling. Um, in what ways am I complicit in that kind of behavior when I am also, you know, dependent on these same sorts of, these metrics that I claim to uh, espouse. So um, part of this is then thinking about uh, Blake's transnational assemblage that he uh, forms over the course of the story where he you know, pulls together um, people from all different nations in this um, revolutionary act. And these are like these ideas of alliances and coalitions. And I feel that um, that feeds my work and I know it feeds sign in the fact that we get to pull together you know, rooms of people like this, when you said at the beginning, Zine, that, um, you know, the difference between being disaffected and then having gathered together all the people whose opinions you actually care about, and then having space to, you know, to remove the moss, to give, um, to give voice to how we are actually feeling. Um, I thought, <laughs> I'm going to close with this, because I think that there also was um, perhaps a slight difference in my thoughts about myself as um, my thoughts about myself and my thoughts about my own um, disaffection or my uh, experience of wearing the mask, growing a thicker skin as a black woman in the academy and versus perhaps what the actual reality of it is. A few weeks ago, Jay Bentle told me that I dressed like a CBVC presenter. <laughs> and that why was why I was so approachable. We were on a writing retreat together where, you know, we'd gone to Hastings to get away from the whiteness of our respective institutions, to be in a room together, to sit and write together, um, you know, to, to sit and, and think and, you know, share, literally just being in our, each other's space to have this relief. And um, I found out that people, um, 
people people come and talk to me all the time and in particular when I say people I of course mean white women and um <laughs> and for some reason my own vision of myself as someone who's quite foreboding or someone who shouldn't you know you, you can't walk up look at you you're shaking your head at me wow thanks sign I am approachable and I dress like a CBBC presenter. So my, <laughs> my experience of disaffection and a thick skin obviously, um, you know, comes, comes out in a slightly different way, perhaps to others. And I think that sort of that visible expression of it and the, I, it had me thinking about this binary of, um, you know, of ways that black people are considered um, other because you know this idea about disaffection is is often about othering and about ways that our experience of um, emotional interiority is other to an accepted um, heuristic of it and you know this idea that we are either this sort of mammied approachable character versus being um someone <laughs> versus being what my mum literally yesterday referred to as sullen <laughs> you know when talking about you know oh the idea that black people are considered sullen you know and um I had thought that I was on one spectrum one end of that spectrum and apparently I'm on the other <laughs> just wanted to share that with you and look now I'm wearing stripes like a CBBC presenter <laughs> thank you I'm out <laughs> Thank you, Riotta. Also in the chat, uh, my silver fox glosses that what the hell is a CDC uh, a presenter? It's a children's kid, a kid's show presenter. Uh, oh, sorry, we're not all in the UK at all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> otherwise we're just sort of slightly mystified. Your mother, that's something else entirely. Uh, uh, and so next, uh, sharing my my new colleague, Lara Choksi, who will be responding to my third chapter on the queer frigidity of professionalism, white woman doctors, the struggle for rights and the marriage plot. And also I realized that we are running longer than people may have anticipated, but again, we are recording this. I'll be making it a podcast episode. So if you need to step out, that's totally fine. And so Lara um, is lecturer in colonial and post-colonial literatures in the Department of English at UCL. Her research draws from the science and technology studies world systems theory, and critical race and decolonial studies, with a particular interest in speculative fiction and poetics. She is the author of Narrative in the Age of the Genome, Genetic Worlds, which already came out this, pa uh, this past year, Bloomsbury 2021. Um, and thanks to Laura, that means I am not the only person who isn't white in the academic faculty of our department. Yay! <laughs> Cringe, yes. Um, and thank you, Laura. Laura's also doing awesome work um, uh, coming from her book, in relation to Henry L. Lax, that as you um, actually had a chance to, to meet with the Lax family in Bristol, I know that um, being in dialogue with them in this really important way to counteract the way that the particular journalist that has made the story a, a big thing has sort of monopolized the family history and like sort of appropriated Blacks narratively into a particular uh, story about uh, scientific developments. But anyways, thank you so much, Lara, and I'll stop sharing and turn it over to you. Thanks so much, Zain. Thanks for that introduction. Yeah, that was that was an amazing meeting, um, and which I'm not going to talk about this evening. But um, but um, the energy of that meeting, I think, was was really was really extraordinary um, for some of the reasons that we've been speaking about this evening. Um, wonderful to hear from others. I'm also not going to talk too much about my own research and focus more on this extraordinary chapter. Um, and I had my medical humanities 
hat on when I was reading it. And one of the things that I think is, is really exceptional about this book is the way that it weaves its interdisciplinarity into the readings here and how it uses that to get at the spaciousness of disaffection. And I was thinking about how this chapter moves its argument about the professionalism of white women doctors through the ways that there's requ they're required to prove, acknowledge or validate forms of medical evidence to legitimize the biopolitics of the colonial state. And in medical humanities, there are always really big questions around evidence, not just what counts as evidence, but also its arrangement in medical contexts, how it takes on lesser or more importance, how it's stratified or disregarded. And I try to think about why this matters when we start talking about the colonial infrastructure embedded within the medical sciences. And one way this infrastructure shows up is in statistics on the denial or dismissal of black and brown pain in UK medical contexts. The training, for example, that South Asian folks have lower pain thresholds or black folks higher ones. And this continual alienation from normative Caucasian embodiment correlates to higher mortality rates among those communities. That is the way that people of color are more likely to be disbelieved or treated incorrectly or dismissed without a prognosis. And this, this disbelief in turn is connected to the creolized incorporation slash disavowal of non-Western practices in global biomedicine. So I wanted to sort of say that, lost what I've lost my response to, to your chapter with, with those comments, because I feel this chapter sets up a relationship between the elimination of anecdotal evidence and the imposition of frigidity on white women professionals by their male counterparts. And in doing that, it offers a way of thinking how the biopolitics or what Hartman calls the racial hygiene of the colonial state operate, particularly how the negotiation over white women doctors professionalization means first, identifying and eliminating anecdotal evidence, and second, ensuring that this identification does not threaten the reproductive futurity of the state. And I was, I was, I was going to say happy. I was, I was really interested to be interested to be introduced to Mary Putnam Jacoby. Jacoby is that how you say it? Jacoby. I'm not an Americanist. I think I, know, I think it's Jacoby, but I don't know if Jacobi. I've ever heard it, anyone say it aloud. Jacoby. Any Americanist in the room, please correct my pronunciation. Jacoby. I think that's the only time I say her name. Say her name. Um, Mary Putnam Jacoby through this chapter, for whom the terms of inclusion as a woman doctor in the profession means the elimination of anecdote or more feminine forms of evidence from medical practice. And this is because anecdote is less scientific, less authoritative, less masculine. This attempted annihilation ends up producing another character in the medical drama of the new nation, the competent patient who learns about his symptoms in advance and comes prepared to tell the doctor why her prognosis is wrong. This competent patient is not only trying to overturn or undo the threat of feminine medical authority, he's also trying to maintain biopolitical supremacy. And this means eventually overriding medical expertise with legal expertise for the sake of an institutional union between medicine and the law, which I see as kind of one of the really exciting things about this chapter design that's happening in this reading. So in Elizabeth Stewart Phelps's Dr. Zay, when the man patient York attempts to convey his love to the woman Dr. Zay, she dismisses these feelings as nervousness. You're not in love, you're only nervous. He, in response, demands that she see him not just as a patient, but also as a man. The implication is that her professionalism means making herself less affectable, colder, frigid even. 
and this frigidity undermines her expert authority and her medical practice. It suggests that he can determine his symptoms just as well, if not better than she can, because his competence as a patient in determining ailment over anecdote, so being in love over nervousness, trumps her medical expertise. And it can do so because being in love is a way of participating in the reproductive, reproductive futurity of the state. That is, it's a condition of being a good citizen. And so Dr. Zay's queerness is unthinkable to him, as you say, Zion, and it's unthinkable on the same trajectory on which her homeopathic and threateningly indigenous care regime has to be coded as romantic affection. So frigidity shows up here as not quite a pathology, not quite a disease, a coldness, a failure of response, as low-key perhaps as not wanting to participate, but a term whose validation relies on his anecdotal evidence. Unlike hysteria, its extroverted cousin, the inward optics of, of the frigidity diagnosis require finding private nodes in the interpersonal where it can be reliably identified. So what's striking in this reading is the negotiation over what's anecdotal, um, what's, uh, what's just nerves or just disinterest, and what can be scaled up into a state of being, being in love or frigidity. With a diagnosis, one can claim the right to a cure, and the cure for York is marriage, and the way he goes about seeking this cure is by becoming a professional himself, and not in medicine, but by training as a, as a lawyer. So the eventual union of medicine and the law by the marriage plot means that the threat of patient competence is resolved through a mutual interest in arranging evidence into higher and lesser degrees of reliability and validity. It means legislating his nervousness into heteronormative futurity, and Zay is eventually coerced into accepting his feelings as valid forms of evidence, as you write, really compelling design. York is now in a position to be able to arbitrate what is or isn't anecdotal, and he gets here not by continuing to undermine the possibility of white woman professionalism, but by constituting himself as a co-expert in the arrangement of evidence. Um, and this union of medicine and the law brings the medicalized subject into direct contact with the obligations of citizenship. And I just wanted to end with, with a question. It left me wondering um, how you would characterize the moment earlier on in the chapter, when you talk about how Jacobi uses um, the language of colonial oppression to talk about white women's suffrage. And this was followed, as you say, by the mutation of abolitionist leanings of suffragists into anti-Black racism after the 15th Amendment granted voting rights to Black men. Is it possible for us to identify moments of political solidarity between white women suffragettes and Black abolitionists rather than just analogous solidarity? Because it seems that the effective limits of citizenship that you've laid out here would foreclose this, would foreclose political solidarity. Um, but it also seems to be a point where this figure of frigidity confronts the spectre of legislative miscegenation. And it makes me wonder how your book might enable us to think about a trajectory of disaffection produced on the horizon of legal partnerships between black men and white women. And I just wanted to end with that thought. Thank you very much for a wonderful book and congratulations. <laughs> And next. Jade, uh, 
For chapter four on objective passionlessness, the Black woman doctors and dispassionate strategies of uplifting love. One of the, this chapter clearly in conversation with the previous. Jade is a Black feminist historian and PhD researcher at the University of Oxford. Her scholarship uses oral history methodologies to center the experiences of women of African and African Caribbean descent in Britain and their long history of feminist activism. Her postgraduate dissertation, Black Women Fighting Back in Thatcher's Britain, won the 2017 Mar Marian Sharples Award for Best Dissertation in the School of History at the University of Leeds. And her debut book, Rebel Citizen, uses oral history interviews to explore the lived experience of the Black women who migrated to Britain following the Second World War and is forthcoming from Ellen Lane. And I first got to get know Jade because of Twitter. I think it was just like before you like fully ascended to superstar status. And I think like it was when you announced that um, you got into every single PhD program that you got into. And then um, my PhD with co-host Liz Wayne, I think tagged me in it and she's like, hey, yes, Jade, we should interview you. And then I was like, oh my God, what? And then we ended up meeting at the Angela Davis um, symposium at Cambridge, but it's been a pleasure. And Thank you so much for that beautiful introduction, Zine. And I feel the need before I start to defend myself against this, this shade that apparently I threw at Miss Rihanna Walcott. So can I just say, on the day that I said she looked like a CBBC presenter, she was wearing the most beautiful pink dungarees. It was, it was an acceptable compliment within the context of the moment. Anyway, I, I, I leave that there and I move on to, to the main course. Right. Partis sequitur ventrum, that which is brought forth follows the belly. The brutal racial, gendered and sexual calculus of chattel slavery gave birth to the modern world. In the still unfolding wake of captivity, the ritual theft, dispossession and disfiguration of black women's reproductive capacities continues to define what it means to be black and in the world. Under this regime, black women's bodies are prefigured as fungible, as empty vessels for the whims, impulses and desires of white people. This ongoing vulnerability to the predations of whiteness is made stark and disaffected when, in the opening pages of the book's fourth chapter, Yao places the field of 19th century science under her microscope. J. Marion Sims, Yao reminds us, was the enslaver who became known as the founding father of American gynecology after carving his way into medical history through experiments on unanesthetized enslaved black women. History is marked by the ghost of Sims and countless other white scientists who crystallized the project of white supremacy and the birth of modern science through the violent expropriation of black women's flesh. In drawing our attention to the spectre of Sims, Yao is also speaking to the constitutive violence of medical progress, the likes of which would repeat across centuries. In a time of what Ronaldo Walcott might call the long emancipation, the Tuskegee experiment, the rise of the eugenics movement, the unconsensual use of Henrietta Lacks cells and the ongoingness of reproductive unfreedom would further suture the practice of science with the ubiquity of anti-blackness. In the face of all this, a world structured on white feelings and the lexicons of progress, reason and discovery that index the project of Euro-Western humanism, what might passionlessness and disaffection offer us as a praxis? In Disaffected, Yao attends to the ways in which structures of white sentimentality have been marshaled over and against the enslaved, the colonized, and the nominally free. The plantation, the colony, and the nation state are all sites predicated upon the libidinal desires of whiteness and the manifold ways in which such desires form the infrastructure of racial capitalism and the mathematics of property. 
if our feelings and our flesh have been used to provide the contours for the everyday terror of white feelings, how might we understand the genealogy of ambivalence, discontent and withholding that have been performed in opposition to the cult of white supremacy? For communities of color living on the underside of capital, on the underside of the world, disaffection is both a criti critical response and an antidote to white feelings, white tears and white fragility. Unfeeling, Yao argues, is the detachment from attachments to hegemonic structures of feeling and the potential for striving toward a radical politics of liberation. In her assertion that modes of affective disobedience such as unsympathetic blackness, queer frigidity, black objective passionlessness and oriental inscrutability are sites rife with the potential for counter intimacies and new horizons of possibility, Yao provides us with a grammar of refusal that cannot easily be recuperated by liberal demands for recognition and representation. In offering this theory of unfeeling, Yao never mystifies the stakes. In our disavows and our discontent, we can fail ourselves and we can fail each other. Yet this risk opens up a generative space in which a practice of disaffection, a practice in the words of Fred Moten of refusing the world that refuses us, might provide the ground for a collective disinvestment from institutions, projects and systems that were never built to sustain us. In the fourth chapter of the text, Objective Passionlessness, Yao explores the tensions, intricacies and stakes inherent within a black feminist praxis of dispassion. Through a close reading of the work of early black women practitioners of medical science, such as Rebecca Lee Davis Crumpler and Rebecca J. Cole, as well as the novel Iola Leroy by Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, Yao engages the fleeting years of re reconstruction as a staging ground within which black women drew upon the language and register of scientific objectivity as a way to circumvent the demands of white liberal sentimentalism and instead practice communal modes of care, healing and health. In her analysis of Black women's critical disaffection, Yao cites Darlene Clark Hines' foundational work on Black Midwestern, women, Black Midwestern women's culture of dissemblance in the 19th century. By dissemblance, Hines writes, I mean the behaviour and attitudes of Black women that created the appearance of openness and disclosure that actually shielded the truth of their inner lives and selves from their oppressors. Extending Hines, Yao complicates our understandings of feelings that are performed outside of dominant modes of expression by noting that dissemblance, dispassion and disaffection were strategic ways in which black women living in the transient space between emancipation and the Jim Crow era contemplated the possibility of black reproductive futurity. For black women across the diaspora, Yao observes, who were subjected to this bind that pathologized the entire spectrum of sexual desire Passionlessness was not reducible to an imitation of the respectability of white middle class values that undergirded the cult of so-called true womanhood. Not so much an absence of passion, the somatic and affective unfeeling enacted a strategic withholding of the self to permit the possibility of personal and communal flourishing. Yao's reading of black feminist passionlessness then invites us to consider the ways in which a praxis of disaffection in the face of anti-black violence has kept black people and black women in particular alive. This consideration is particularly important for those of us who endeavor to remain accountable, not to institutions, but to those who we are in community with, those with whom we think and fight alongside. As an oral historian mapping the genealogies of black women's history in Britain, so much of my practice involves listening to what remains unsaid and learning how to sit with silence, the silence of an interviewee, the silence of the archive, the silence of history. 
In many ways, black silence has been manufactured by the structures of white sentimentalism as a vacuum within which the fictions of the state, of the nation, of empire have assumed the status of fact. At the same time, black silence, our forms of dissemblance, our practices of withholding have been integral to a black radical tradition within which other ways of knowing remain under the radar, unseen to those outside of the circle. For those of us who are endeavoring to think, write, and chart the trajectories of insurgent narratives, whilst also occupying often precarious, often tenuous positions within the university space, we encounter a familiar bind. Whilst we might endeavor to use our positionalities within the academy to attend to the histories of our communities, our work, our labor, our feelings are routinely instrumentalized by the liberal university to absolve itself of violence, subsume our counter-narratives into hegemonic structures of knowing and feeling and eradicate the potential, the radical potential even, of coalitions and solidarities. This is not to say that this is always done against our will. There are often rewards for disclosing and translating black suffering within the lens of the institutional gaze. In pursuit of inclusion, such projects typically redirect the rage and rebellion of black movement towards the architecture of the university and neoliberal individual recognition. In refusing to occupy the role of native informant, how might we engage Yao's call for us to speculate about the possibilities of feeling otherwise? In this charge, Yao asks us to think about what it, mean, what it is that we already know, what it is that we might yet know, and how these ways of knowing and feeling might resist being absorbed into the very structures that continue to kill, kill us. This is theory in the flesh, the ways we perform disaffection out there so that we might hold on to something substantial enough to nourish and sustain us. I'm called here to think about the effective possibilities that have been opened up by the communal practice of dispassion amongst fellow scholars of color. I think about the networks of care and affiliation that have been formed throughout the pandemic, the many nights I've sat in Miss Rihanna Walcott's house with Zion and Jess over a glass of wine and the opportunities for collaboration and creativity that have emerged outside the purview of the academy. I trace over all the conversations we've had, the intimacies that we've shared and the stories that will never leave that room. To echo one of Zion's many beautiful lines, these forms of collective care are what continue to keep me alive. Thank you. Thank you, Jade. And yes, please keep an eye out for her book. There was an excerpt of it that was published in The Guardian like a year or two ago that I think got widely shared everywhere because it was absolutely brilliant. Um, Jay talking about her grandmother. Um, yes. And finally, the final chapter, chapter five on Oriental inscrutability and Sui Sun Far, Chinese faces and the modern apparatuses of US immigration. Uh, Dr. Carrie Mackrath is a Christina Gaub postdoctoral research fellow associate in Gender and Technology at the University of Cambridge Center for Gender Studies. She is also a research fellow at the Lieberhume Center for the Future of Intelligence. Carrie's work examines how AI reproduces and reanimates gendered um, and racialized histories of violence. Oops, did I realize I did not share my thing? I'm so sorry. Ah. Um, or it's, it's, it's okay, I guess. Um, uh, she draws on a wide range of disciplinary perspectives, including critical race theory, gender studies, STS, and critical prison studies. Some of her current research projects include how the concept of yellow peril um, shapes contemporary AI discourse and how the sexual and gender-based violence is coded into predictive policy, policing technologies. Carrie is also the co-host of the Good Robot po podcast, which explores technology through a feminist lens. And you could follow her at, at Carrie Macrath or at the Good Robot on 
Um, and I got to know Carrie because she generously reached out to me after I think a talk and was like, hey, I liked your work. And I was like, that's so nice of you to, to take the time and just send an email. Cause like, especially, you know, during the pandemic we're so exhausted by all that sort of digital stuff. Like it takes that extra effort I realized to continue reading and writing and to even write emails and to do ones that you don't have to like, Cheers to everyone who's able to continue doing any of that. So thank you so much, Carrie. Well, thank you so much for having me here. And I stand by everything in that email. It's so wonderful to finally see this work come out. And so congratulations on the publication of a truly impressive book. Can everyone see my screen? Um, I'm just gonna, is that, that okay? Great. Um, so yes, and thank you so much to all the other respondents. It's a real privilege to be able to exist in community here and to think collectively together and just such a testament to you, Zion, and the communities that you build around you. Um, so in this presentation, I want to cover this fascinating chapter by Zion on oriental inscrutability. Uh, and then I also want to think about how maybe it can inform how we think about Asiatic racialization and technology now. Because I have to confess, I'm not a literature scholar, so this is slightly new territory for me, but I have learned so much from this chapter and I can't wait to share it with you all. Um, so in this chapter, Zion turns to consider oriental inscrutability in the work of Suisun Fa. And they describe oriental inscrutability as, open quote, perhaps the most coherent racialized mode of unfeeling, the fact that it has a particular name indicating a structurally pervasive and lingering phenomenon in the Western cultural imagination, close quote. And they open this with an exploration of this distinct mode of racial unfeeling and its relationship with other forms of gendered, queer and racialized disaffectedness writing that, open quote, such unaffectedness is alternatively demonized at adversarial alien unassimilability, so very hard word, um, or neutralized as a model of compliant passivity, indexing the uneasy positioning of Asian subjects subject to geopolitical developments and situated as needed as disciplinary mediator complicit in the ongoing subordination of black and indigenous populations. And this chapter then turns to consider the concept of the Chinese face, examining how white encounters with the Chinese face are shaped by racial pseudoscience. But then they also explore the challenge posed by the Chinese concept of face and its proposed alternative taxonomy of feeling that disrupts the perceived universalism of Western modes of emotional expression. Zain then dives into the work of Suisun Fa, the mixed race journalist and author writing during the era of the Chinese Exclusion Act, with a specific focus on her short story collection, Mrs. Spring Fragrance. Uh, through the discussion of gendered modes of inscrutability in Fa's work, Zain highlights how Fa, open quote, explores the racial and sexual politics of oriental inscrutability as a maligned effect of structural alienation that refracts continually renegotiated relationships between the Chinese face as cultural phenomenon and individual embodied performance, close quote. And the chapter concludes by considering the political implications of oriental inscrutability, highlighting Fa's skepticism about the possibility of a different political horizon and asks, open quote, in turning the Chinese face to look away, what can one look to instead? Uh, so in this very short response, I guess I want to consider how can Zion's exploration of Fa's work shape our approach in new and emerging technologies such as AI? Um, so I want to cover quickly three main points. And so the first is thinking about um, the intersections between affect, emotion, technology, and the figure of the human. 
Uh, the second is thinking about techno-orientalism and thinking about how the disaffectedness of oriental inscrutability produces the Asiatic subject as artificial and machinic. And then the third just offers some quick closing thoughts on how Zine's work might offer ways of rethinking the relationship between affect, recognition, and computer vision. So first, feeling human. So while technology is often interpreted, as Anne Boyer argues, as antithetical to feeling, emotion, and care, the field of affect recognition technology aims and claims to create tools that can accurately detect human emotions. Critics of affect recognition technology, such as Alexa Haggerty and Alexandra Albert, emphasize the lack of verifiable scientific evidence that someone's emotional state can be successfully identified from their face. And they also foreground how most emotion recognition technology is based on Paul Ekman's theories of basic emotions, suggesting that there's only six core emotional states that are held universally. And this exemplifies what Zion describes as a, open quote, presumed universalist paradigm of effective and social expression that goes back to Adam Smith's fellow feeling. And moreover, we see AI-powered technologies being deployed to compel what Zion calls emotional respectability, or forcing people to feel in ways deemed to be normative and acceptable. So Lisa Nakamura, for example, highlights the rise of virtuous VR programs, which, uh, in the words of one company founder, aim to, open quote, hack your body into becoming more empathetic, close quote. Meanwhile, Oz Keys uh, notes that one of the world's foremost affect recognition companies, Affix Teva, has its roots in trying to teach an open quote, close quote, fix autistic people's emotional expression. And this, they argue, reflects broader dehumanizing discourses about autistic people in the AI industry, suggesting that, open quote, communication failures between autists and non-autists should be overcome by fixing autistic people rather than by attempting to meet autistic people in the middle. Yeah, I guess also one one point out is that our imaginaries of AI, so how we think about AI and imagine it, also frequently position feeling as the defining boundary between what it means to be human and what it means to be a machine. So Zine writes in the introduction of Disaffected, open quote, emotional expression is presumed to be the signifier of effective human interiority, what Ray Tarada calls the expressive hypothesis. And so a famous example of this, the one I've got pictured here, is Blade Runner's Voigtkampf test, which uses uh, measures bodily responses to emotional questions to distinguish humans from replicants. So amid the utmost importance of affectivity in the age of AI, where does this leave the inscrutable techno-oriental? Uh, Zion describes late 19th and early 20th century attitudes towards oriental inscrutability as an early form of techno-orientalism, or the fear and fetishization of the technological capacities of the so-called East and its peoples. Rohuang and Yu foreground how in these techno-orientalist visions, the East is portrayed as a site of strange contradictions, as both hyper and hyper-technological, both hypermodern and pre-modern. And this sense of techno-oriental inscrutability shapes our conception and our understanding of AI. And there's a number of examples we could use here, but I'm going to draw on one of the most famous thought experiments in the philosophy of AI, which is John Searle's Chinese Room. And in 1999, he described it like this. Um, imagine a native English speaker who knows no Chinese locked in a room full of boxes of Chinese symbols, a database, together with a book of instructions for manipulating the symbols, the program. Imagine that people outside the room send in other Chinese symbols, which, unknown to the person in the room, are questions in Chinese, the input. 
And imagine that by following the instructions in the program, the man in the room is able to pass out Chinese symbols, which are correct answers to the questions, the output. The program enables a person in the room to pass a Turing test for understanding Chinese, but he does not understand a world of Chinese. And so this response by Searle to the famous Turing test gestures towards opacity or a machine that appears to think but is not really thinking and that we cannot make an assumption of interiority based on outputs. There's so much we could say about that thought experiment, but today I'll just say that Searle's choice of the so-called Chinese language in his thought experiment implicitly draws on the perceived intractability of the Chinese language and subsequently Chinese people. As Zine writes, open quote, while the Chinese are inscrutable, I remain lucid. Their object-like obscurity constitutes my subjectivity, my humanity, observes Ray Chow, about the logic underlying Jacques Derrida's construction of global theory by characterizing the Chinese language as inscrutable. Inscrutability collapses Chinese faces, culture, and language into a surface that stigmatizes another culture as at once corporeally and linguistically intractable, close quote. Zhang continues that, open quote, the inscrutability of Chinese characters as a language is intertwined with the racial and cultural essence of Chinese character, close quote. And so it's unsurprising to me that Asiatic racialization and oriental inscrutability act as the key linchpin for these thought experiments about the opacity of intelligent machines and their lack of any meaningful sense of interiority. So with that in mind, um, I want to ask sort of in closing, um, can oriental inscrutability also offer us perhaps a political strategy, one of opacity under the ever increasing encroachment of machine vision and surveillance? And that question is ever the more urgent as we witness the automation of racist pseudoscience such as phrenology and physiognomy and facial recognition tools designed, for example, to predict or deduce criminality, supposedly the most recent iteration of the physiognomical practices that Zine describes in this chapter. As Michelle Elam notes, this drive to categorize, taxonomize, and classify people and faces in the fields of AI and machine learning evokes the Enlightenment compulsion to create a colonial order of things. So as our bodies are rendered increasingly hypervisible and vulnerable to the piercing gaze of the camera, can the inscrutable Oriental's decision to turn her face away provide an insight into how we can and should resist? Can the effective opacity of the inscrutable techno-oriental disrupt the universalized structures of feeling enacted and compelled by affect-wrecking technologies and by AI imaginaries? Zain writes that, open quote, cultural misunderstandings of the Chinese face reflect the radical alterity of an alternative paradigm of feeling that challenges the epistemic episteme. And they also write, disaffection converges with disidentification. Yes, we are unfeeling, and perhaps that should be feared because it is the tool we can use to tear down dominant structures of feeling to build anew, close quote. And so I don't know the answer to any of the questions that I've just asked, but I plan to take them forward with me using this work as inspiration. So Zion, thank you again so much for this chapter, for this work, for organizing this event. It really is an honor. Thank you, Carrie. Um, and so I did want to just introduce Lucy, even though she is unable to be here, because um, I just I think it's so pivotal that um, I make sure that do that. Like Lucy is the only uh, respondent who would not be in the UK. Um, she's based 
um, on unseceded um, Quicquetlam territory, which is perhaps better known as uh, parts of British Columbia. And Lucia Shide is a queer black scholar visual artist working on the unseceded territory. Trained as a Canadianist and trauma theorist, Lucia's research and artistic interests converge on questions about the politics of representation, with a particular focus on how artists and writers use silence as a means of reshaping, resisting, and reimagining experiences of violence. Um, and to, to them, I had assigned this coda where I sort of dropped the usual disaffected guise of the scholar to explain like how, for me, disaffection has been a theory in the flesh as a way of navigating, surviving, to, so I could write this book. And this is something I feel like I say in my acknowledgments is too easily overlooked that in order to write the book, you have to stay alive to do it. And there, we're often doing this work in situations that are deleterious to our physical, mental, emotional, spiritual well-being. Um, and Lucia was one of the friends I made during this diff difficult time. And I'm so happy to see names I recognize from that time. Where I needed all the support, uh, Ryan Stillwagon, Kieran Sunar, among many other friends that I made during my postdoc. Um, thanks to the guidance of Mary Cherry Chapman, also making it here from so far away. Thank you for being um, in, in, this, in the chat room as well. Um, and I just wanted to just sort of explain the trajectory of, of the project that's the chapters that my, my friends and colleagues have so aptly traced is of course on one hand a historical one, but also to some extent like trying to be one that is critically comparative and not simply like here's this, this is the race chapter, this is the gender chapter, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but the very first form of unfeeling I thought about was oriental inscrutability because I had been ca called inscrutable or I've been called frigid at different times. And the way that truly thinking through the implications of that type of racialized and queer unfeeling meant that to be like, I couldn't just simply think about it in isolation, but had to think about the forms of anti-Blackness and indigenous dispossession that also constitute the way that I am triangulated as what we call a model minority. Um, and it was sort of like this unfolding that happens um, then in reverse order from the Swiss and Far chapter is the first one I've thought about. And then at the end, but then my book sort of is the thing that builds up to the sort of self-revelation of myself also thinking of myself as like this queer Chinese diasporic subject moving between the US, Canada and England, which is uh, she did uh, as queer, disabled and my own coming to a type of sense of myself through that and, and against that. Um, and yeah, I think that this there is a way that our scholarly work is too easily disavowed um, as somehow being um, exterior to us, but it's only through rigorous interrogation of my own positionality and thinking about my praxis with others in a meaningful way that I think it's worth continuing to do this form of work and to build community with all of you. Um, and I guess I'll just yeah end on that note. Thank you all for attending. Um, I'm going to also going to turn, I think, stop the recording in case people feel subconscious. I don't know if you have much time to speak for about other other work. You know, if you want to follow Lucia's work, definitely um, uh, I'll, I'll put in her contact details, but on Instagram and on Twitter, she is at Empathy Warrior. Uh, thank you all for joining us today. It's a real pleasure again to be in community to be working alongside so many of you. Uh, and it means a lot.